Well, if you're just with us, I want to catch you up as to where this flood account falls within the book of Genesis. We don't just open to it randomly. We've been going through it. And the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis help us to build a biblical worldview. There are a lot of voices out there today to say, this is how you should see life. And we've got to go back to the text. And so this book of Genesis helps us to build that. In the first 11 chapters specifically, if you see the next slide up there, that 1, 1 through 2, 3 shows us the creation of the earth, that God is sovereign and he is spectacular. And if you notice in 2, 4, there's this repeating phrase that you see in 2, 4. You saw it again in 5, 1, and as Laura read it in 6, 9. You see from 2, 4 to 4, 26 that there is a corruption of this creation and the redemption is revealed that through the seed of woman, he will destroy the seed of Satan. And in 5, 1 through 6, 8, you get this list and you see that this spread of sin happens, but there's these rays of redemption that Enoch walked with God and he was not. And that the prediction through Lamech that Noah would come and he would give rest for all the toil on the ground. And if you look at 10, 1, you see that there's that phrase again. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. And so Moses stops Directed by the Holy Spirit, says First Peter, and from 6.9 through 9.29, and we're going to break that up into two parts. We'll see the condemnation of the world and its hope, and then the covenant of Noah next week. But he takes a lot of time to show us the judgment of sin and the salvation of man. Each side of this judgment account, you see lists of people because the book, at least this first part of the book, pivots on Noah. He's midway. Uh, between the creation of Adam and the call of Abraham, here is Noah, the one through whom the world would be saved at that time. And if you're following along in the bulletin, you see the outline, and it's also up on the screen for you, that, that God is going to prepare us for the upcoming destruction. God will destroy the earth, not willy-nilly, but because of the sin of man, and God will save his people from that sin. And the main point should be up there as well, that God makes new beginnings to continue his kingdom on earth. That comes straight from a commentary, and it's the best way to capture what is happening in 6, 9 through 9. God makes new beginnings to continue his kingdom on earth. He started his kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2. The kingdom become corrupt, and so God will judge sin, but he will continue it, and that is our hope. So we begin in 6.9 and we see these are the generations of Noah. And this whole account is going to be on how God will save his people by his grace for his glory. And we begin seeing in verses 9 through 13 that there are only two ways to live. There are only two ways to live on earth from the beginning of Genesis all the way through Revelation. You see it in Psalm 1. You see it in Proverbs 1. There are only two ways to live. Those who walk with God that we talked about last week. Enoch walked with God and he was not. We'll see it of Noah here today. And those who wander from God. That's it. There's no middle ground. That is how the Bible, not any preacher, describes it. There are only two ways to live. Uh, The Bible is not neutral at all and it's describing those who wander from God. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 18... No one is good but God. And so for us to be good, we must be 
in Christ, who is the exact representation of God. Humans, according to the scripture, are seen as either righteous or wicked. There's nothing in between. From the biblical perspective, there is no good moral person who just doesn't like God, or there's no good moral person who just doesn't believe in God. Their morality masks their wickedness. People are divided into two. Those who recognize God and order their lives accordingly, and those who reject lives, reject God and live for themselves. And so we begin with the good news. In 6.8 it said, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And at the end of verse 9 it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah was a righteous man, not because of anything in Noah, but from verse 8. Noah found favor in God's eyes. It is all of grace that he was righteous and he was blameless and that he walked with God. God saved him and God enabled him to walk with himself. And hopefully this describes all of us. All of us. Not that we are righteous on our own, but our righteousness, says Philippians 3, is in Christ. Uh, Not that we are blameless on our own, but God sees us as he looks through his son and that all our sins have been atoned for past, present, and future. And not that we ever wander from God, but the pattern of our life is God-centered. That that it's Godward. It's, It's centered on Jesus. It's empowered by the Spirit to bring glory to God. The mystery of the Trinity is the essence of our lives. And my question would be, does that describe you and I? Does that describe you and I? That's the good news, right? God saves people that he he makes righteous and he sees them as blameless and they should walk with him. But here's the bad news. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Three times in two verses, we get this word corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. That's the language that Moses is using to describe a world apart from God. He goes on to say it is violent. And so Moses is using strong language to describe a sinful civilization. This is why God brings judgment on the world. It's not brought upon the innocent. It's not brought upon those who are blameless. It's brought upon God-rejecting, God-belittling people who think they know better than their creator. And so God is going to make a new beginning through Noah. And new beginnings are needed because the world is wicked. God says in verse 13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And this is the fourth time. From Adam to Cain um, to last week or to Lamech whom we saw. And even now, the sin of mankind affects the world. And so God says, I'm going to destroy the world. God doesn't do this just as a reaction ancient Near Eastern accounts of the flood because all civilizations have an account of some worldwide catastrophe said the gods, plural, condemned the world because the humans were noisy. 
That is, it's, it is laughable. It would be like me going, you know, I'm burning my house down. I can't believe those kids. Man, they're loud. Loud kids. You know, just up there singing with K-Love. They're just loud. Yapping. I'm done. That's not how God does it. God grieves. That's what we saw last week. God grieves. And his judgment is just. It's strange, but it's also severe. If we're seeing the severity of God's judgment, it is worldwide. God God is creator of the world. He wants the entire world to worship him. And so the rest of this chapter describes this preparation, the refuge from the wrath of God to come. And we're not going to read those verses again, but you see the, the, the description of the ark down to its very measurements. One commentary says, in modern measurements, the ark would have been about... And it is in the NIV, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, yielding a displacement of about 43,000 tons. The inside capacity would have been 1.4 million cubic feet, an approximate total deck area of 95,700 square feet. That's a big ship, a big ark. So the pictures we saw, that's just half the size. I really wish he would have done it to full size so that we could say, wow. And so he makes this ark and these animals are to come. And it says, if you saw it, if you watched it with this, every two of every kind, two of every kind. And there's all sorts of questions of how did we get the animals on the ark? Well, namely, the ark was big enough to carry two of every kind. And that doesn't mean that every kind of animal that we see today was on there because anybody who understands science understands there's no such thing as macroevolution. It's illogical. Something can't come from nothing and a lesser than can't create a greater than. It doesn't happen. Yet we all would agree. None of us would disagree with that there are dogs at the equator who have thinner hair than, say, dogs in the mountains. Or as I was driving up to... uh, what lake is that? Somewhere. Dotsero and then Sweetwater. You see the cattle up there and the horses up there have thicker fur. No. That's a good idea. So it's not trying to count for every little thing. It says two of every kind. And from that kind, they could multiply and fill the earth. And then we see the reason for it in verse 13, as I read, because the earth had become wicked in 17. He says this, for behold, I will bring floodwaters upon the earth to destroy all flesh with its breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. That's the severity of God's judgment. And we see in verse 22, Noah, if you wanted to label him, You'll get another label for him next week, but so far he is a shipwright zoologist. Huh? You like that? Shipwright is just a term. He's a shipbuilder, and he's a zoologist. He's going to have a place where there are animals, and there are lots of them. And so he does, in verse 22, just as the Lord commanded. And in chapter 7, 
You see in verses 6 and 7, Noah is about 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. If you wanted a key word, we've moved from God's preparation to God's destruction and under destruction. Noah and his wife and his sons' wives and the animals went into the ark. God was even so gracious as to give him a kind of a reminder email for those of you that use OmniFocus. This is, hey, the flood's coming soon. Kind of pops up on Noah's iPad, iPhone, whatever smartphone you have. And it's a little reminder, the flood's coming in about a week. God is good like that. Gives him a reminder. And in 11 and 12, in the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, of the seventh day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were open and rain fell upon the heavens and were upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And so you see Noah and the animals go into and then the rains fall upon the earth. God burst them forth. Where he keeps them, I have no idea. Job says he's got storehouses of snow somewhere. He can keep them wherever he wants. He's God. But he burst them forth. And you just, he gives us a glimpse of that. Not making light of this in the slightest sense. But if you see a video of 2004 tsunami or what just happened on the 11th, you see the power of water that could come and wipe out everything. If you see verses 21 through 23 of chapter 7, it says all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils have breath of life died. And the ESV and I think the NAS said he blotted out everything. It was mentioned in 6... Chapter 6, verse 7, and repeated here, he blotted out. And so into, upon, and then this blotted out, everything. That term is used in 6, 7. It's used in 7, 4. It's used four times in Exodus, three times in Deuteronomy, once in Second Kings, once in Jeremiah, once in Ezekiel, and once in the New Testament and Revelation. And every single time it's used of God bringing judgment. I will blot out. I will destroy that which is sinful because I am holy. Too often we just see the negative side of this. Turn with me to Psalm 51. There's two other places this term is used. And for me this week, and I hope for you, it makes God's judgment make more sense. Psalm 51 Verses 1 and 2. Psalm 51, I'll just read the title of it. Before, to the choir master of Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, David doesn't just quit after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He recognized his sinfulness. He recognized he should have died, should have died but God didn't take his life. And so David gives us one of the most powerful psalms in the entire Psalter 
on how God can make new beginnings with us. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And here's the aspect of the judgment we don't normally see. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. If you go down to verses 9 and 10, you see in 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And the same pattern follows here. Create in me a pure heart or a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. There is a condemning aspect to God's judgment. No doubt about it. Yet there's a cleansing aspect. God punishes because he's holy and just, but God purges because he's gracious and merciful. Best illustration of that is a criminal who goes to jail, who's removed from society. There's the punishment, but the purification is the world is a safer place. There's the judgment upon one, as we will see next week, when life is taken, that person should be removed from society. And when that person is removed, the world is a safer place. It happened throughout the Old Testament. And it happened in your and my life, if we know Jesus Christ. You see it in the book of Numbers. They were told to go into the land, take the land, they come back with the grapes. And only Joshua and Caleb said, let's go. The other 10 said, no. And so God decides this generation will be blotted out. They will not see. And so they wander and they die in the wilderness. And a new generation would go into the land. And in Hebrews 9, 13, and 14, listen to the language of the judgment, not only condemning sin, but cleansing us. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without blemish to God, purify our conscience or cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. See, we often get caught up in the negative side of God's judgment. It's true, but we miss that God judged sin through his son so that you and I could be cleansed. And new beginnings happen because God determines them and he is sovereign over them. And in the case of The flood and in the case of our salvation, God decides to preserve his holiness and his grace through one man. If God's judgment is severe, God's salvation is exclusive. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah. And what he's talking about there is he's going back up to Verse 18 of chapter 6, I will establish my covenant with you. That's what we're going to talk about next week. But he remembered his promise to his people. And so you have God's preparation, God's destruction of all sin, and God's salvation through one man. 
But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind blow on the earth and the water subsided. God will punish sin, but he, he will cleanse the world of sin. He remembers his promise to his people and then he will restrain his judgment. And you see in those verses in chapter 8 that Noah's a wise man. That the fountains of the deep had closed and the rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded on the earth. And at the, under, at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. In verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark he had made and he sent forth a raven, a strong bird, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up on the earth. And so Noah, being patient and wise, just as the God who saved him was patient and wise, sends out a raven, a strong bird that can survive on its own. Then he sends out a dove, a tender bird, to see if the waters had fully subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. So she returned to the ark. And so he put out his hand. Wouldn't that have been cool? You just see this. This is the first wild kingdom, right? You know, he puts out his hand. He probably didn't even have a big glove on. The dove just sat there. He's a patient man and he waits. He does it again and he waits. And finally, it is fully dry that God remembers his covenant with Noah. Noah didn't just charge ahead out of the boat, out of the ship. This shipwright zoologist took his time, just like his father in heaven. He was methodical. He was patient. And in 13 and 14, it says, In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters dried of all the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the earth was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out completely. Then Noah said, Then God said to Noah, Go forth. And if you were to do a little from 7:11 to 8:13 you were to see a calendar progression this all took place over a year's time and then the ship the ark which if you know your old testament is the same thing that holds the word of god later on in the law it is an ark and so through this ark the world through the one man coming into the refuge of God, the world is saved. God continues his kingdom by his sovereign grace. By his sovereign grace. And all those who believe in him and take refuge in him shall be saved. If we go to Hebrews 11, you can just, you don't need to go there, but Hebrews 11, 7 says, by faith, comma, Noah. The rest of what it says, by faith. Noah, I want you to build, I want you to be a shipwright. I want you to build this ark. It's a picture. We'll get more into that later on about how it represents my presence among my people. But I want you to build it. But it hadn't rained yet. I know. Hadn't rained yet. Not on the earth. There were rivers flowing, water in the earth, but it hadn't rained yet. I want you to build this. Okay. And First Peter says he was a herald of righteousness. What you doing, Noah? <laughs> Building a boat. Well, it's an ark. I mean, you didn't get into... Why are you doing that? Well, uh, 
the earth is corrupt. If you look around, it's it's corrupt. That's what God said to me, and he, he doesn't use neutral language. He said it's corrupt and 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 wicked and violent, and he and he's going to judge the earth. <laughs> Fool, How, how's he going to judge the earth? I mean, this God. Well, he's going to send uh, rain, flood the whole earth. Rain? rain? What's rain? It's never rained. That's what he said. And I'm just going with this word and a long history of how my great, 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 great grandfather Adam had passed on. Just this is, they disobeyed God's word and God brought judgment and he shows grace and this is how he's going to do it. You're more than welcome to come on. So in 6.11, God sees sin. He's not a reactionary God. He's not like some of us. When we get angry, we don't evaluate the situation. We just react. But he sees and he grieves over sin. In 6.13, he determines to punish sin. And in 6.13, he warns that through his herald of righteousness, judgment's coming. And in 7.14, it said God shut them in that God shuts in the righteous. He saves them from the wrath to come. And in 8.1, God remembers his promises to his people. And in 8.1, he also makes all things new. He restrains the waters, allows the earth to dry out. And in 8.15, he commands. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your son's wives. Bring out every living thing that is with you of all the flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that's on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth. And look what he says. God never changes. God never changes. Be fruitful and multiply. It's the same command he gave Adam and Eve a long time ago. Be fruitful and multiply. And so God gives a command to renew the earth. He sees sin, he punishes sin through his heralds of righteousness, and he warns the world of the oncoming judgment. The righteous are saved because they are shut in through one man. God remembers his covenant. He makes all things new. And until then, he wants Noah to renew the earth. And so you see the severity of God's judgment. It's worldwide. The exclusivity of God's salvation, it's through one man. You see the mercy of God's sovereign grace on those who would believe. And you see the necessity of our response. That you see Noah, 22, did all that the Lord commanded him. 7, 5, he did all that the Lord commanded him. And if you were to read Hebrews 11, it fleshes out from a New Testament author. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Even Jesus makes reference to the flood. So when when my Savior, when men who die on crosses and rise from the dead make reference to the flood, I believe them. I don't I don't need more videos are nice, pictures are cool, but but if Jesus said it while they were marrying and giving in marriage and living their lives, Noah said judgment's coming. And so there's a, there's a multitude of ways we could apply this through the New Testament onto our lives, that, that Noah found grace. And it was not Noah's righteousness in and of himself, but God made him righteous. We could 
Look at that. Or Noah responded because of God's grace to the work of God in his life. And so he walked with God and he was obedient in his generation. Or through him, a new beginning was made and he was to renew the earth, kind of like what we're supposed to do. Or God's judgment is coming and Revelation clearly shows us that God's judgment is on the horizon. Worldwide catastrophic judgment is coming. We could, but I think the best place to go is to our Savior. And if you'll turn with me to Matthew 7, his most famous sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, I think this is the best connection in light of building a biblical worldview, in light of Noah building an ark. Here is Jesus. In Matthew 7, starting in verse 13, This is gentle Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He ended his most famous sermon with these words. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small. Through one door in the ark came all the animals, came Noah, his wife, his sons, and his son's wife, and the Lord shut him in. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Many of our friends and our family and our co-workers are not walking with God. They are on the wide road to destruction. Jesus paints two roads It's not enter through the narrow gate and this is the wide gate, but then there's kind of this medium road that a lot of people can walk on. That's not what it says. And if you have it in your Bibles, in my Bible, it's red letter. That means Jesus said it. They're on the wide road of destruction. And so you and I need to be close enough to connect and caring enough to confront with all compassion with all reason, because that's what Jesus, a descendant of Noah, did. And if you look at verse 15, he continues, Beware, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Gives another illustration. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. He continues on, not everyone, not everyone who says to me on that day, notice Jesus even took uh, the liberty there. Not everyone who says to me, he's living, speaking to to me as if he is, God incarnate, which he was, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father, Jesus, shows that even though he is the Lord, he is always and only submissive to his father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Which means... 
Not that they didn't have cognitive knowledge that there was a man who walked the earth named Jesus. It's, I never had a relationship with you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Catch the connection. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all these great things? And he says, you workers of lawlessness. He didn't say you're good moral people who just didn't follow me. There are many gurus out there. They're false teachers. They're leading people astray, subtly writing books called Love Wins, a conversation on heaven and hell. And they should cause us to be like God, righteously angry at the false statements that are not biblically true and like God to grieve over many who will walk and wander away from God. We must be discerning enough to see the error and bold enough to declare the truth. Like Peter said of Noah, we must be heralds of righteousness. And this is how Jesus ends his famous sermon. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and hmm, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Now, lest you think I'm trying to connect this arbitrarily, this is a Simile, notice the word, everyone who hears these words of mine will be like. So Jesus is telling an illustration. It's not for us to go out and start making unwise comparisons to rains falling, floods coming, etc. But his picture, his parable says, what are you building your life on? What am I building my life on? Are we confident enough And a sovereign who sees everything just, who does not give in to wickedness and gracious God. Are we confident enough to build our lives on that? Even though the world will say, oh, you're a fool. You're a fool. You are foolish. That is what the world will say. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The world will say that. Oh, come on. Jesus, the only way? Well, he said it. I I always go with Jesus. I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The distant relative of Noah said, salvation comes through one man and it's me. Oh, you you can't. I mean, that's just, God, you're so intolerant. You're narrow-minded. That's just way out there. I mean, get with the times. Aren't there, aren't we all just, aren't all religions just grasping at the same God? It's like a big elephant and you guys have the, the ear and, and we just have the, the leg and somebody else has the tail and somebody else has the trunk. I would back up from that illustration and go, who created the elephant? They're not all one ways to the same God. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. So are we building our lives upon the foolishness of the cross?
Or have we bought into the world's values? That, that success is something other than the faithfulness of God, being faithful to God. Beauty is something other than recognizing who we are as the image of God recreated in the image of Christ. Or that meaning in his life is anything other than being on mission with God until he comes, his son comes again. So by faith, like Noah, we need to heed God's wording and build our lives. For the coming age, there will be destruction. God will destroy those who reject him. Judgment is coming. To escape it, we must be in Christ. He was the only one ever, as we will see next week, not even Noah, who was described as righteous and blameless, was that perfectly all of his life. He is the only one who was always righteous, always blameless. And that new beginnings and blessings abound through him. Father, thank you that from the beginning of time, through true stories you've captured in your true word, we see what happened as history as a picture of our lives. That those of us in this room who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, have been shut in and saved from your coming wrath. Might we be just like Noah, who, after finding favor with you, are seen by you as righteous and blameless in your son, and might we be, as Peter said, a herald of righteousness. Might we be discerning enough to see the error of the wide road of the wicked. Might we be bold enough, loving enough, caring enough to point them to the narrow road of righteousness through Christ and Christ alone. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.